3. Easing deity, and here on the river, depending entirely upon those men on the shore, slowly, inch by inch, the little craft, feeling her own weakness, forges ahead against the leaping current in the gap while in the reef. None come to offer assistance to our crowd, who are now turned facing us, and strained almost flat on their backs, giving the strength of every drop of blood and fiber of their being, and the scene, now lit up by a momentary glimmer of feeble sunlight, assumes a wonderful and terrible picturesqueness. I am chained to the spot by a horrible fascination, and I find myself unconsciously saying, I fear she will not go. I fear, but a man has fallen exhausted. He almost fell overboard and now leans against the mast in utter weariness and fatigue, brought on by the morning's exertions. He is instantly relieved by a bulldog fellow of enormous strength. Now comes the culminating point, a truly terrifying moment, the very anguish of which frightened me, as I looked around for the lifeboat, and I saw that even the Commodore's cold and self-satisfied dignity was disturbed. The hawsers strain again, creak, crack, creak, crack. The lifeboat watches and comes nearer to us. There is a mighty yell. We cannot go. Yes, we can. There is a mighty pull. And you feel the boat almost torn asunder. Another mighty pull. A tremendous quiver of the timbers. And you turn to see the angry water. Which sounds as if a hundred hounds are beating under us for entry at the barred door. There is another deafening yell. The men tear away like frightened horses. Another mighty pull. And another. And another and we slide over into smooth water, then I breathe freely, and yell myself, the little boat seems to gasp for breath as a drowning man, saved in the nick of time, shudders in every limb with pain and fear, as we tied up in smooth water, all the men, from the layab on to the meanest tracker, laughed and yelled and told each other how it was done, we bailed the water out of the boat, and one was glad to pull away from the deafening hum of the thundering cataract, a faulty toe line, a slippery hitch, one false step, one false maneuver, and the shore might have been by that time strewn with our corpses, as it was, we were safe and happy, but the trackers are strange creatures, at times they are a quarter of a mile ahead, soft echoes of their coarse chanting came down the confines of the gully, after the rapid had been passed, and in rounding a rocky promontory midstream, one would catch sight of them bending their bodies in pulling steadily against the current of the river, Occasionally one of these poor fellows slips, there is a shriek. His body is dashed and mercifully against the jagged cliffs in its last journey to the river, which carries the multi-log corpse away. And yet these men, engaged in this terrific toil, with utmost danger to their lives, live almost exclusively on boiled rice and dirty cabbage, and receive the merest pittance in money at the journey's end. Some idea of the force of this enormous volume of water may be given by mentioning the exploits of the steamer Pioneer, which on three consecutive occasions attacked the Yatton when at its worst, and, though steaming a good fourteen knots, failed to ascend, she was obliged to lay out a long steel wire hawser, and heave herself over by means of her windlass, the engines working at full speed at the same time, hard and heavy was the heave, gaining foot by foot with attention on the hawser almost to breaking strain in a veritable battle against the dragon of the river, yet so complete are the changes which are wrought by the great variation in the level of the river, that this formidable mid-level rapid completely disappears at high level, after we had left this rapid and right glad word are we to get away we came, after a couple of hours run, to the Nikil, or Buffalo Mouth Reach, quiet enough during the low water season, 
but a wild stretch during high river, where many a junk is caught by the violently gyrating swirls, rendered unmanageable, and dashed to atoms on some rocky promontory or boulder pile in as short a space of time as it takes to write it. It was here that the woodlark, one of the magnificent gunboats which patrol the river to safeguard the interests of the Union Jack in this region, came to grief on her maiden trip to Chungking. One of these strong swirls caught the ship's stern, rendering her rudders useless for the moment, and causing her to sheer broadside into the foaming rapid. The engines were immediately reversed to full speed astern, but the swift current, combined with the momentum of the ship, carried her willy-nilly to the rock-bound shore, on which she crumpled her bows as if they were made of tin. Fortunately she was built in watertight sections, her engineers removed the forward section, straightened out the crumpled plates riveted them together, and bolted the section back into its place again so well, that on arrival at Chunkin not a trace of the accident was visible. Upon arrival at Quaifu one bids farewell to the gorges. This town, formerly a considerable coaling center, overlooks most beautiful hillocks, with cottage gardens cultivated in every accessible corner, and a wide sweep of the river. We landed with difficulty. Chair, chair, yelled the trackers, who marked time to their cry swinging their arms to and fro at each short step, but they almost gave up the ghost. However, we did land, and so did our boy, who bought excellent provisions and meat, which, alas, too soon disappeared. The mutton and beef gradually grew less and daily blackened, wrapped up in opposite corners of the cabin, under the protection from the wet of a couple of sheets of the pinkin. From Kwefu to Wanshian there was the same kind of scenery the clear river winding among sand flats and gravel banks with occasional stiff rapids, but after having been in a womb pen for several days, suffering that which has been detailed, and much besides, the journey got a bit dreary. These, however, are ordinary circumstances, but when one has been laid up on a bench of a bed for three days with a high temperature, a legacy of several years in the humid tropics, the physical discomfort baffles description. Malaria, as all sufferers know has a tendency to cause trouble as soon as one gets into cold weather, and in my case, as will be seen in subsequent parts of this book, it held faithfully to its best traditions. Fever on the Yangtze in a womb pen would require a chapter to itself, not to mention the kindly eccentricities of a companion whose knowledge of malaria was most elementary and whose knowledge of nursing absolutely nil, but I refrain, as also do I a further talk about the Yangtze gorges and the rapids. From Kwefu to Wanshian is a tedious journey. The country opens out, and is more or less monotonously flat. The majority of the dangers and difficulties, however, are over, and one is able to settle down in comparative peace. Fortunately for the author, nothing at all happened, but travelers are warned not to be too sanguine. Wrecks have happened within a few miles of the destination, generally to be accounted for by the unhappy knack the Chinese boatman has of taking all precautions where the dangerous rapids exist, and leaving all to chance elsewhere. Some two years later, as I was coming down the river from Chongqing in December, I counted no less than nine wrecks, one boat having on board a cargo for the China Inland Mission authorities of no less than 480 boxes. The contents were spread out on the banks to dry, while the boat was turned upside down and repaired on the spot. A hopeless cry is continually ascending in Hong Kong and Shanghai that trade is bad, that the palmy days are gone, and that one might as well leave business to take care of itself. And it is not to be denied that increased trade in the Far East does not of necessity mean increased profits. 
competition has rendered buying and selling, if they are to show increased dividends, a much harder task than some of the older merchants had when they built up their businesses 20 or 30 years ago. There is no comparison, but Hong Kong, by virtue of her remarkably favorable position geographically, should always be able to hold her own, and now that the railway has pierced the great province of Yunnan, and brought the provinces beyond the navigable Yangtze nearer to the outside world, she should be able to reap a big harvest in western China, if merchants will move at the right time. More often than not the Britisher loses his trade, not on account of the alleged reason that business is not to be done, but because, content with his club life, and with playing games when he should be doing business, he allows the German to rush past him, and this man, an alien in the colony, by persistent plotting and other more or less commendable traits of business which I should like to detail, but for which I have no space, takes away the trade while the Britisher looks on, the whole of the trade of the three western provinces Yunnan, Quechow and Sichuan has for all time been handled by Shanghai, going into the interior by the extremely hazardous route of these Yangtze rapids, and then over the mountains by coolie or pack horse, this has gone on for centuries, but now the time has come for the Hong Kong trader to step in and carry away the lion's share of the greatly increasing foreign trade for those three provinces by means of the advantage the new Tonkin Yunnan Railway has given him. The railway runs from Haiphong in Indochina to Yunnanfu, the capital of Yunnan province, and it appears certain to the writer that, with such an important town three or four days from the coast, shippers will not be content to continue to ship via the Yangtze, with all its risk. British and American merchants, who carry the greater part of the imports to western China, will send their goods direct to Hong Kong, where transshipment will be made to Haiphong, and thence shipped by rail to Yunnanfu, the distributing center for inland trade. To my mind, Hong Kong merchants might control the whole of the British trade of western China if they will only push, for although the tariff of Tonkin may be heavy, it would be compensated by the fact that transit would be so much quicker and safer but it needs push. The history of our intercourse with China, from the days of the East India Company till now, is nothing but a record of a continuous struggle to open up and develop trade, opening up trade, too, with a people who have something pathetic in the honest persistence with which their officials have vainly struggled to keep themselves uncontaminated from the outside world. Trade in China cannot be left to take care of itself, as is done in Western countries, however invidious it may seem. We must admit the fact that past progress has been due to pressure. Therefore, if the opportunities were placed near at hand to the Hong Kong shipper, he would be an enterprising person indeed were he not to avail himself of the opportunity. Shanghai has held the trump card formerly. This cannot be denied. But I think the railway is destined to turn the trade route to the other side of the empire. It is merely a question as to who is to get the trade the French or the British. The French are on the alert. They cannot get territory, now they are after the trade. It is my opinion that it would be to the advantage of the colony of Hong Kong were the Chamber of Commerce there to investigate the matter thoroughly. Now is the time. Footnotes, Thorough Journey Chungking to Sui Fu via LUCHOW Chapter The Beginning of the Overland Journey. The Official Halo Around the Caravan. The People's Goodbyes. Stages to Sui Fu. A Persistent Coolie. My Boy's Indignation. And the Sequel. Kindness of the people of Chongqing, the Chongqing Consulate, need of keeping fit in traveling in China, walking to Bud, the question of, face, and what it means, author runs the gauntlet, 
carrying coolies rate of pay, the so-called Great Paved Highways of China, and a few remarks thereon, the Garden of China, magnificence of the scenery of Western China, the tea shops, the Chinese coolies thirst and how the author drank, population of Sequan, minerals found, salt and other things, the Chinese in, how it holds the palm for unmitigated filth, description of the rooms, Sequan and Yuanman caravans arise, need of a camp bed, toileting in encycleted publicity, how the author was met at market towns, how the days do not get dull, in a manner admirably befitting my rank as an English traveler, apart from the fact that I was the man who was endeavoring to cross China on foot, I was led out of Chongqing en route for Bono alone, my companion having had to leave me here, it was Easter Sunday, a crisp spring morning, first came a public sedan chair, bravely borne by three of the finest fellows in all China, at the head of which on either side were two uniformed persons called soldiers incomprehensible to one who has no knowledge of the interior, for they bore no marks whatever of the military whilst uniformed men also solemnly guarded the bath, then came the grinning coolies, carrying that meager portion of my worldly goods which I had anticipated would have been engulfed in the Yangtze, and at the head of all, leading them on as captains to the Salvation Army, was I myself, walking along triumphantly, undoubtedly looking a person of weight, but somehow peculiarly unable to get out of my head that little adage apropos the fact that when the blind shall lead the blind both shall fall into a ditch, but Chinese decorum forbade my falling behind, I had determined to walk across China, every inch of the way or not at all, and the chair coolies, unaware of my intentions presumably, thought it a great joke when at the western gate, through which I departed, I gave instructions that one hundred cash be doled out to each man for his graciousness in escorting me through the town, all the people were in the middle of the streets those slippery streets of interminable steps to give me at parting their blessings or their curses, and only with difficulty and considerable shouting and pushing could I sufficiently take their attention from the array of official and civil servants who made up my caravan as to effect an exit. The following were to be stages, first stage Zero Ma Kong 80 Li, second day Wang Xuan Xian 120, third day Li Shi Chan 105, fourth day Li Chao 75, fifth day Lan Xian Chan 80, sixth day Lan Kai Xian 75, seventh day Sui Fu 120, in my plainest English and with many cruel gestures, four miles from the town, I told a man that he narrowly escaped being knocked down owing to his extremely rude persistence in accosting me and obstructing my way, he acquiesced, opened his large mouth to the widest proportions, seemed thoroughly to understand, but continued more noisily to prevent me from going onwards, yelling something at the top of his husky voice a voice more like a foghorn than a human voice which made me fear that I had done something very wrong, but which later I interpreted ignorantly as impudent humor, I owed nothing, so far as I knew. I had done nothing wrong. Hi, fellow. Come out of the way. Reverse your carcass a bit. Old chap. Get. What the who the. Oh. Master. He want ye makey much bobbery. He no gone my pigeon. De rogue. He want ye catch one more hundred cash. He gone one PC chairman. This to me from my boy in apologetic explanation. Then. Turning wildly upon the man. After the manner of his kind raising his little fat body to the tips of his toes and effectively assuming the attitude of the stage actor, he cursed loudly to the uttermost of eternity the impudent fellow's ten thousand relatives and ancestry, which, although it called forth more mutual confidences of a like nature, 
and made Tong my boy foam at the mouth with rage at such an inopportune proceeding happening so early in his career, rendering it necessary for him to push the man in the right jaw, incidentally allowed him to show his master just a little that he could do. The man had been dumped against the wall, but he was still undaunted, with thin mud dropping from one leg of his flimsy pantaloons. He came forward again, did this chair coolly, whom I had just paid off for it was assuredly one of the trio leading out again one of those little wiry, shaggy ponies, and wished to do another deal. He had, however, struck a snag. We did not come to terms. I merely lifted the quadruped bodily from my path and walked on. Chunking people treated us well, and had it not been for their kindness the terrible three days spent still in our womb and on the crowded beach would have been more terrible still. At the consulate we found Mr. Phillips, the acting consul, ready packed up to go down to Shanghai, and Mr. H.E. Sly, whom we had met in Shanghai, was due to relieve him. Mr. J.L. Smith, of the consular service, was here also, just reaching a state of convalescence after an attack of measles, and was to go to Chantiu to take up duty as soon as he was fit. But despite the topsy-turvedom, we were made welcome and both Phillips and Smith did their best to entertain. Chunkin Consulate is probably the finest certainly one of the finest in China, built on a commanding site overlooking the river and the city, with the Bangalow part over in the hills. It possesses remarkably fine grounds, has every modern convenience, not the least attractive features being the cement tennis court and a small polo ground adjoining. I had hoped to see polo on those little rats of ponies, but it could not be arranged. I should have liked to take a stick as a farewell. People were shocked indeed that I was going to walk across China. Let me say here that travel in the Middle Kingdom is quite possible anywhere provided that you are fit. You have merely to learn and to maintain and hold patience, and you are able to get where you like. If you have got the money to pay your way, but walking is a very different thing. It is probable that never previously has a traveler actually walked across China, if we accept the ref, Jay McCarthy of the China Inland Mission, who some 30 years or so ago did walk across to Burma, although he went through Chow province over a considerably easier country, not because it is by any means physically impossible, but because the custom of the country and a cursed custom too is that one has to keep what is called his face, and to walk tends to make a man lose face. A quiet jaunt through China on foot was, I was told, quite out of the question, the uneclipsed audacity of a man mentioning it and especially a man such as I was, was marveled at. Did I not know that the foreigner must have a chair? This was corroborated by my boy, on his oath, because he would have to pay the men. Did I not know that no traveler in western China, who at any rate had any sense of self-respect, would travel without a chair, not necessarily as a conveyance, but for the honor and glory of the thing? And did I not know that, and furnished with this undeniable token of respect, I should be liable to be thrust aside on the highway, to be kept waiting at ferries, to be relegated to the worst inn's worst room, and to be generally treated with indignity. This idea of mine of crossing China on foot was preposterous. Even Mr. Hudson Broomhall, of the China Inland Mission, who with Mrs. Broomhall was extremely kind, and did all he could to fit me up for the journey it is such remembrances that make the trip one which I would not mind doing again was surprised to know that I was walking, and tried to persuade me to take a chair, but I flew in the face of it all, these good people certainly impressed me, but I decided to run the gauntlet and take the risk, 
the question of face is always merely one of theory, never of fact, and the principles that govern face and its attainment were wholly beyond my apprehension. I shall probably be more concerned in saving my life than in saving my face, I thought. Therefore it was that when I reached a place called Futuguan I discarded all superfluities of dress, and strode forward. Just at that time in the early morning when the sun was gilding the dewdrops on the hedgerows with a grandeur which breathed encouragement to the traveller, in a flannel shirt and flannel pants a terrible breach of foreign etiquette, no doubt, but very comfortable to one who was facing the first eighty leaf he had ever walked on China soil, my three coolies the typical Chinese coolie of Sichuan, but very good fellows with all their faults were to land me at Suifu, 230 miles distant some 650 leaf. In seven days' time, they were to receive 400 cash per man per day, were to find themselves, and if I reached Suifu within the specified time I agreed to Kunsha them to the extent of an extra thousand, if they cared, according to the arrangement, 90 cathies apiece, and their rate of pay I did not consider excessive until I found that each man sublet his contract for a fourth of his pay, and trotted along light-heartedly and merry at my side. Then I regretted that I had not thought twice before closing with them. It is probable that the solidity of the great paved highways of China have been exaggerated. I have not been on the North China highways, but have had considerable experience of them in Western China, Sichuan and Yunnan particularly, and have very little praise to lavish upon them. Certain it is that the road to Suifu does not deserve the nice things said about it by various travelers. The whole route from Chongqing to Suifu paved with flagstones varying in width from three to six or seven feet the only main road, of course is credibly regular in some places, whilst other portions, especially over the mountains, are extremely bad and uneven, in some places, I could hardly get along at all, and my boy would call out as he came along in his chair behind me, Master, I think you makey catch to PC and makey carry, this bond no proper road, perks you makey bad feet come, and truly my feet were shamefully blistered. One had to step from stone to stone with considerable agility. In places bridges had fallen in nobody had attempted to put them into a decent state of repair though this is never done in China and one of the features of every day was the wonderful fashion in which the mountain ponies picked their way over the broken route. They are as sure-footed as goats. As I gazed admiringly along the miles and miles of ripening wheat and golden rape, pink flowering beans, interspersed everywhere with the inevitable poppy, swaying gently as in a sea of all the dainty colors of the rainbow. I did not wonder that Sichuan had been called the Garden of China. Greater or denser cultivation I had never seen. The amphitheater-like hill smiled joyously in the first gentle touches of spring and enriching green, each terrace being irrigated from the one below by a small stream of water regulated in the most primitive manner the windlass driven by manpower, and not a square inch lost. Even the mud banks dividing these fertile areas are made to yield on the sides cabbages and lettuces and on the tops wheat and poppy. There are no fences. You see before you a forest of mountains, made a dark leaden color by thick mists, from out of which gradually come the never-ending pictures of green and purple and brown and yellow and gold, which roll hither and thither under a cloudy sky in indescribable confusion. The chain may commence in the south or the north in two or three soft, slow-rising undulations which trend away from you and form a vapory background to the landscape. From these I see such a picture even as I write, seated on the stone steps in the middle of a mountain path, at once united and peculiarly distinct, 
rise five masses with rugged crests, rough, and cut into shady hollows on the sides, a faint pale aureola from the sun on the mists rising over the summits and sharp outlines, looking to the north, an immense curved line shows itself, growing ever greater, opening like the arch of a gigantic bridge, and binding this first group to a second, more complicated, each peak of which has a form of its own, and does in some sort as it pleases without troubling itself about its neighbor. The most remarkable point about these mountains is the life they seem to possess. It is an incredible confusion. Angles are thrown fantastically by some mad geometer. It would seem, splendid banyan trees shelter one after toiling up the unending steps, and dotted over the landscape, indiscriminately in magnificent picturesqueness, are pretty farmhouses nestling almost out of sight in groves of sacred trees. Oftentimes perpendicular mountains stand sheer up for 3,000 feet or more, their sides to the very summits ablaze with color coming from the smiling face of sunny nature. In spots at times where only a 12-inch cultivation is possible, a dome raises its head curiously over the leaning shoulder of a round hill, and a pyramid reverses itself, as if to the music of some wild orchestra, whose symphonies are heard in the mountain winds, seen nearer and in detail. These mountains are all in delicious keeping with all of what the imagination in love with the fantastic, attracted by their more distant forms, could dream, valleys, gorges, somber gaps, walls cut perpendicularly, rough or polished by water, cavities festooned with hanging stalactites and notched like Gothic sculptures all make up a strange sight which cannot but excite admiration, every mile or so there are tea houses, and for a couple of cash a coolie can get a cup of tea with leaves sufficient to make a dozen cups, and as much boiling water as he wants, Sichuan, the country, its people, their ways and methods, and much information thereto appertaining, is already in print, it were useless to give more of it here and, reader, you will thank me, but the thirst of Sichuan that thirst which is unique in the whole of the empire, and eclipsed nowhere on the face of the earth, except perhaps on the Sahara one does not hear about, Many an Englishman would give much for the Chinese coolies thirst so very, very much. I wonder whether you, reader, were ever thirsty? Probably not. You get a thirst which is not insatiable. Yours is born of nothing extraordinary. Yours can be satisfied by a gulp or two of water, or perhaps by a drink or perhaps two, or perhaps three of something stronger. The Chinese coolies thirst arises from the grilling Sunday from a dancing glare, from hard hauling struggling with 120 pounds slung over his shoulders, dangling at the end of a bamboo pole. I have had this thirst of the Chinese coolie I know it well. It is born of sheer heat and sheer perspiration. Every drop of liquid has been wrung out of my body, I have seemed to have swum in my clothes, and inside my muscles have seemed to shrink to dry sponge and my bones to dry pith. My substance, my strength, myself has drained out of me. I have been conscious of perpetual evaporation and liquidfaction, and I have felt that I must stop and wet myself again, I really must wet myself and swell to life again, and here we sit at the tea shop, people come and stare at me, and wonder what it island they, too, are thirsty, for they are all coolies and have the coolie thirst, I wet myself, I pour in cup after cup, and my body, myself sucks it in draws it in as if it were the water of life. Instantly it gushes out again at every pore, I swell in more, and out it rushes again, madly rushes out as quickly as it can, I swell in more and more, and out it comes defiantly, I can keep none inside me, 
useless I cannot quench my thirst, at last the thirst thinks its conquest assured, taking the hot tea for a signal of surrender, but I pour in more, and gradually feel the tea settling within me, I am a degree less torrid, a shade more substantial, and then here comes my boy, master, you want to make you one drink brandy and soda, no can catchy soda this side have got water, can do, God, shall I, shall I, no, I throw it away from me, fling a bottle of cheap brandy which he had bought for me at Chungking away from me, and the boy looks forlorn, tea is the best of all drinks in China, for the traveler unquestionably the best, good in the morning, good at midday, good in the evening, good at night, even after the day's toil has been forgotten, tomorrow I shall have more walking, more thirsting, more tea, China tea, thou art a godsend to the wayfarer in that great land, I endeavored to get the details of the population of the province of Sichuan, the variability of the reports providing an excellent illustration of the uncertainty impending over everything statistical in China estimates ranged from 35 to 80 millions, the surface of this province is made up of masses of rugged mountains, through which the Yangtze has cut its deep and narrow channel, the area is everywhere intersected by steep-sided valleys and ravines, the world-famed plain of Chentiu, the capital, is the only plain of any size in the province, the system of irrigation employed on it being one of the wonders of the world, every food crop flourishes in Sichuan, and an exhaustible supply of products of the Chinese pharmacopoeia enrich the stores and destroy the stomachs of the well-to-do, and with the exception of cotton, all that grows in eastern China grows better in this great garden of the empire, its area is about that of France, its climate is even superior and delightfully accidenty. Among the minerals found are gold, silver, cinnabar, copper, iron, coal and petroleum, the chief products being opium, white wax, hemp, yellow silk. Sichuan is a province rich in salt, obtained from artesian borings, some of which extend 2.500 feet below the surface, and from which for centuries the brine has been laboriously raised by an equated windlass and water buffalo. The best conditions of Chinese inns are far and away worse than anything the traveler would be called upon to encounter anywhere in the British Isles, even in the most isolated places in rural Ireland. There can be no comparison, and my reader will understand that there is much which the European misses in the way of general physical comfort and cleanliness. Sanitation is absent in toto. Ordinary decency forbids one putting into print what the uninitiated traveler most desires to know if he would be saved a severe shock at the outset, but everyone has to go through it, because one cannot write what one sees. All travelers who have had to put up at the caravanseries in central and western China will bear me out in my assertion that all of them reek with filth and are overrun by vermin of every description. The traveler whom misfortune has led to travel off the main road zone. 